This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. The Informer Daily is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. At Joy 94.9, we'd like to pay our ongoing respects to Elders past, present and emerging. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. You can help us by visiting joy.org.au and become a member or donate. Any amount helps us bring you community-powered radio. Thank you. This is the Informer Daily for Wednesday, the 8th of April. I'm your host, Arian Potts. Today, your COVID-19 update. Having trouble sleeping lately? Many of us are, and we speak to Professor Dorothy Brock from the Sleep Health Foundation about how to get better sleep and how it can benefit your health. Pictures have surfaced from what appears to be a gay wedding in Philadelphia in 1957. There isn't much known about the men in the photos, but a new documentary TV series is looking to find out, and there are ways that you can get involved. But first, this update. This is Dee Mason with Joy 94.9's COVID-19 update for the 8th of April. Federal Parliament will sit today in order to pass the $130 billion JobKeeper package, which will see money given directly to employers to pay employees and keep them working through the COVID-19 crisis. The number of MPs and senators going to Canberra will be kept to the minimum required to pass legislation and social distancing rules will be applied. Although this legislation will pass today, employers will not start seeing the money from the JobKeeper allowance until May. With the parliamentary floor now open, Labor will be pushing for amendments to the JobKeeper allowance to extend benefits to short-term casual workers and people on temporary visas. Opposition leader Anthony Albanese is expressing concern for the people and industries left out of the JobKeeper package, including NDIS staff and the arts and entertainment sector. Labor has confirmed they will allow the legislation to pass today, even if no amendments are made. Australians are being urged to stay home over Easter to reduce the spread of COVID-19 as the death toll hits 50 nationally. Although the daily increase in cases is dropping, health experts are warning that any travel could cause a jump in cases, undoing all the hard work done to get Australia to this point. Wuhan is beginning to lift its quarantine restrictions after 76 days of lockdown. Around 50,000 people are expected to leave the city, though they are first required to be certified as healthy by the government and they will likely face quarantine in whatever destination they go to. There is still an estimated 500 to 1,000 cases of COVID-19 in Wuhan and some fear easing the lockdown will lead to asymptomatic carriers passing the virus on to others. American President Donald Trump is laying the blame for the pandemic on the World Health Organization, claiming it showed preferential treatment to China in its initial reporting and recommendations. These criticisms come as New York State records a jump in deaths, the total now overtaking that of the September 11 terrorist attack. News organizations and health experts are accusing the president of not taking early enough action to prevent this outbreak. 
An American billionaire has pledged a quarter of his wealth to COVID-19 relief efforts, marking the largest donation made during the pandemic to date. Co-founder of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, will donate $1.6 billion through his charitable fund, Start Small, which will release a public document to track payments so people can see exactly where the money is going. Dorsey said he is publicising this donation to inspire other billionaires to do the same. New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian says social distancing measures will be the new way of life in New South Wales, but they will not always be as severe as they are now. The restrictions will be reviewed on a month-to-month basis and they will be relaxed once health experts can confirm it is safe to do so. Residents of northwest Tasmania should expect further scrutiny in the coming week as more cases continue to emerge in the region. Premier Peter Goodwin says it is greatly important for people on the northwest coast to observe all the social distancing rules to stem the outbreak. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you've been finding it more difficult to get a good night's sleep during the COVID-19 crisis, this next story is for you. The informer spoke to the chair of the Sleep Health Foundation, Professor Dorothy Brock, to find out some of the things that might be causing sleeplessness during this crisis and what you can do to help yourself get a good night's sleep. For the benefit of our listeners, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Professor Dorothy Brock and I'm a sleep psychologist and um, uh, I'm also chair of the Sleep Health Foundation in Australia and I guess I've been um, researching and uh, treating sleep and sleep problems for about 30 years. Is self-isolation, lockdown, self-quarantine or even just the stress of a major crisis like this, is this affecting people's sleep or could it affect people's sleep? Well, we could certainly um, think that it would affect people's sleep. And uh, I think we see two different um, aspects uh, could be coming into play here. One is the sort of behaviours that people do. um, And the other is the stress and worry um, about uh, the virus and and loved ones and yourself getting sick. If we look at some of the behavioural things, um, when you're... Down, it's really important that you keep up your normal routines and your sleep-wake routine is probably the single most important uh, routine for you to keep up. So go to bed at your normal time. Um, uh, think about how much sleep you usually need um, for um, sort of um, adults. Uh, we're looking at uh, usually between seven and uh, eight and a half, nine hours. So if you think to yourself, well, I'm normally an eight-hour sleeper, Make sure you don't spend longer in bed than eight hours. If you're bored at home, it's very easy to think, oh, you know, it's nine o'clock and I'll go to bed, um, which means that you, you might be expecting to, to be in bed and expecting to be asleep from, say, nine o'clock to seven o'clock. Now, that's, uh, that's not a good thing to do because that's 10 hours in bed and your body only needs, say, eight hours So the thing to do is to think, okay, I'll keep up my normal routine, 11 o'clock to bed, 7 o'clock to get up, and I won't sleep in. Even if I've had a bad night from um, worrying about, you know, the virus and and everything else, um, I won't sleep in because that will make it harder for me to get to sleep um, the following night at a normal time. And it also means that your sleep might not be as deep the following night. 
um, which also happens if you're spending too long in bed. So keep your routines really um, about how much sleep you need and don't sleep in and don't go to bed too early. I found that um, just just for myself, and I imagine that there might be uh, a few of our listeners who've experienced the same, I at first was maintaining, you know, my regular uh, sleep schedule, but I suffered several nights in a row, and this is the first time in my life that this has happened, where I just had insomnia and couldn't get to sleep for more than, like, uh, 20 minutes at a time. And that happened after... Uh, social social isolation. So after I, I had been um, social socially isolating for, you know, a few uh, days, maybe a week, is is that the kind of thing that could then cascade into affecting your your ability to get a good night's sleep? Yes, absolutely. Um, because if you're stuck at home, you're not getting as much light, and we know that light is very important to keep our body clock running properly. And so lots of light during the day. Um, is uh, is going to help you get a good night's sleep. So if we're inside all the time, we obviously have much lower light levels. We also um, might have lower exercise levels um, because we're just not out and about doing things. So I think keeping up um, some level of activity is very important for your sleep as well as your mental health and, <laughs> and your overall health. Um, so these things are, are, are really important. On top of that, if, if you're waking up every 20 minutes, um, I would expect that's probably mostly in the second half of the night. We see that very much um, with people who are uh, what we call a bit hypervigilant or um, you know, a bit hyper. Um, so your, your overall stress levels are higher and um, you're worried. And so that um, means that you're going to have this breakthrough wakefulness coming, particularly in the second half of the night when you're worrying about, um, you know, all the things that there are to worry about. And, uh, and that's very, very detrimental to sleep. And we know that there are a number of things that, that people can do to try and reduce that hyper arousal um, and to try and, um, and not to, to worry so much at night. One of the important things, I think, is to actually increase your sleep pressure a little bit, which counterintuitively means going to bed a bit later. You know, if you're going to bed um, a bit later, then you're more likely uh, that your body wants to get deeper sleep and you're less likely to have some of that breakthrough um, waking up. And what we often say is if you've had, you know, if you're having some really bad night's sleep, Keep a little sleep diary and have a look at how much sleep you're actually getting. And if you're only getting, say, six and a half hours sleep, well, I know this sounds hard, but it does work, is try to just go to bed for six and a half hours. So you're teaching your body to consolidate the sleep that it's getting. And, of course, the hard thing if you're only sleeping six and a half hours is to get up at the normal time in the morning. So it's a very hard thing to do, but the principle is that you're trying to increase your pressure for sleep. The other thing, of course, is to try and stop your mind from from going round and round and, and from chattering. And this is where you really need to try and... Um, you know, get a hold of your mind and uh, and say this is not the time to worry. Um, this this is you know in the middle of the night the planning part of your brain has actually shut down, and so the part that catastrophizes is very active. 
So if you're lying in bed thinking of all of the dreadful things that can happen, that's actually not going to be at all conducive to going to sleep. So if you can tell yourself that this is not the time to worry, this is the time for me to think about um, my last holiday or my next holiday or my special safe place in the rainforest or walking along the beach or whatever it is that um, you want to imagine to calm yourself down and to help distract you, then that's what you should be thinking. I've also heard that um, if you've been previously active, like say you go to the gym or go for runs regularly, that maybe not being able to do that, I know all of the gyms that are, you know, accessible by my house are closed uh, for the foreseeable future, Um, that people have said that that leaves you with unspent energy that can keep you awake. How much truth is there to that? Well, I think think that the general principle is, is absolutely correct. If you have less activity during the day, then you're going to um, uh, have less uh, deep sleep at night. And that's, that's a well-established um, fact. Um, I don't know about um, the unused energy, but I like to think of it in terms of the body clock. Um, you know, our circadian rhythm. Circadian just means 24-hour rhythm. So if you've, if you've got a big high during the day, lots of light, lots of um, uh, activity, both mentally and physically, then you're going to, your body clock is going to go down further at night when you want to be asleep. So it's about making the rhythm, if you can imagine the high wave, we always talk about the curve at the moment, flattening the curve, well, you want a high curve during the day, lots of light, lots of activity, if you can, you know, as much as you can, and then um, a nice big dip at night um, so that your body clock can get that, um, uh, can facilitate that deep you actually want. And of course, lots of worry is going to, to break into that uh, deep sleep, as, as I've said. So would a good strategy for people who are maybe struggling a bit be to try and remain active during the day, go for a walk, go for a run, obviously still maintain social distance, but, you know, try to find a way to, you know, use up a lot more energy during the day so that they can relax better at night? Yes, I think I think that's, that's a good principle. I think the other good principle, um, really important from a body clock point of view, is to get up at the same time every morning and to get lots of light in your eyes, um, you know, through your eyes in the morning. So have breakfast by a sunny window or if it's, uh, if it's warm enough outside so that you're getting that light because that, um, that will help you um, go to sleep the following night. It's, it's all about keeping, keeping the rhythm um, and the rhythm of your body hormones um, the way that they should be going and morning light is particularly important for that to happen. Uh, what are some of the adverse effects of um, sleeplessness, insomnia at a, at a mild level? Sure. Well, we know that sleep, sleep deprivation um, uh, interferes with your ability to concentrate on things and your attention. And, of course, we notice that particularly if we're driving. But if you're uh, sleep deprived, you might have trouble reading or staying awake while you're watching TV. And, of course, if you're... Um, if you're falling asleep in the evening, that's going to take your sleep pressure away from when you do go to bed. So it's really important not to nap during the day and not to fall asleep uh, on the couch in the evening. So when you do go to bed, have a nice wind down period when you're not 
um, uh, upset or, or, or worried, but you're more relaxed, maybe a, a nice bath, warm shower, um, doing some nice listening to music, something that's relaxing in that hour before bed is really important. What you shouldn't be doing is reading the news about the latest death uh, toll or any other sort of things about the coronavirus. Put all your electronic devices, ideally, away for um, the hour before bed and do some other things that are, are much more uh, relaxing. You said napping can take away your sleep pressure. So if somebody's extremely tired because they didn't get a good night's sleep, napping in the middle of the day might actually not help them the next night. Well, it won't help the next night. Um, if if they're really feeling very tired, um, then sometimes a nap can be quite beneficial and it can um, sort of spark you up. Um, but what we recommend is to set the uh, alarm and have no more than a 20-minute nap because a 20-minute nap is likely to refresh you a bit. Um, 20 minutes, you won't go into deep sleep unless you're super, super sleep deprived, but normally you won't go into deep sleep in a 20-minute nap and uh, it's less likely to um, interfere with your um, uh, sleep that night. The other thing that we know about um, uh, when people are sleep deprived is their emotional stability is not so good. So they're much more um, easily irritated. They can be more sad, um, um, you know, going on to depression. Um, and they're just overall less uh, in control of their emotions. So um, that's something to be uh, aware of as well. The other thing um, is that we do know that um, getting enough sleep and prioritising sleep is important for your immune system as well. Um, and so, you know, it's it's good to think carefully about uh, what you can do to have the best sleep habits that, um, that you want um, so that your immune system stays strong. And uh, if I can just say that the Sleep Health Foundation website... We have um, about 90 different fact sheets about all sorts of aspects of sleep. So if you go onto the website um, and have a look at some of those fact sheets, there's things like good sleep habits or insomnia, um, about the body clock, all sorts of lots of um, really uh, easy to access uh, tips on how to improve your sleep. Thank you so much for talking to us. Okay, you too. Thank you very much. That was Professor Dorothy Brock of the Sleep Health Foundation speaking to Informer reporter Nicholas Kamenier-Sandry. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. A set of photos from what looks like a gay wedding in 1950s Philadelphia has been donated to the One Archives Foundation, which is an archive at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, and they're dedicated to telling the stories of LGBTIQA people in an authentic way. After finding the photos in the archive, a team of three guys, Neil Baer, PJ Palmer, and Michael J. Wolf, decided to set out and find who was in the photos. These photos have a white border with a sort of postage stamp cut on the edges, just like my parents' snapshots from the 50s. In one, two men are embracing. One has wavy, brill-creamed hair, the other has a bit of a messy part falling across his face, and they look into each other's eyes deeply. They're both sporting white carnations in their suit lapels. Another photo shows the couple looking down as they hold a knife together, cutting a large white wedding cake. They're both smiling gently, almost a smirk but not quite. 
The photos were dropped off at a Philadelphia photo store. One of the workers kept the photos, and these guys never got their prints back. Three filmmakers and storytellers in Los Angeles stumbled across the photographs at the One Archive in LA. Now they're on a mission to find out who was in the photos and return them to the men and their families, if they can. I spoke with PJ Palmer, Michael J. Wolf, and Neil Bear about their quest to find out more. Here's Neil. I saw the photos and immediately was overwhelmed emotionally by their power and the fact that these men turned in their film and never received their photos back. So I invited Michael and PJ to see them. They're, they're friends of mine and they're also writers and they went and saw them also. We all shared a pretty similar response, which was we're deeply moved by them. They were so arresting. They're so happy and joyous in the pictures. And the, I was not expecting to see that on my tour of the One Archives. I, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to see, but I wasn't expecting to see this beautiful gay wedding from the 1950s. And then it was also uncanny and it felt like, oh, oh, this is so right. Of course it's here. We've always, we've always been here. So there was like a deep comfort in, in looking at them as well. When I first saw them, just like Michael and Neil, really overwhelmed, which was really surprising. Um, I'm not easily emotionally overwhelmed by things, but, uh, and there was also a bit of shock. I mean, in the sense like, oh, this even existed. Um, I felt like I was looking at something that was very, very special because I'd never seen anything quite like it. It took me a while to understand that, yeah, people did have ceremonies. They did have commitments. And, and sure, maybe people did get married uh, long before gay marriage or even in the 50s or before then. But until I saw those photos, it had never occurred to me. Um, and I think the other thing that really struck us is that these are family photos. They're, these belong in a family photo album. You know, they're not, they're not professionally taken. They seem to be taken by an amateur photographer. They're not set up the way a wedding photographer would set up a picture. They look like a guest who was there, took a bunch of pictures. And they kind of look like every other wedding photo I've ever seen in my family albums and anybody's family albums, except that they're two men. And that, that was really moving and overwhelming and kind of shocking. You know, we're all storytellers and filmmakers, and I think it took us about less than a week after we had toured the One Archives to kind of, I think we texted each other in a group in a group text and just said, God, that was a really great, great tour or whatever. And then immediately following that was, we have to do something. We have to find these men. We have to figure out the story. You know, the story just begged us. It was just calling, calling, calling us. How did the photos get their way into the archive? They were donated by some collectors, and the way that they obtained them is that they bought them online uh, on eBay when they were put up by the woman whose mother had kept them. And this was a woman in Philadelphia who worked at a photo shop. And when the film was turned in, she never returned the film back to the grooms. We've heard that she thought that they were, quote, hilarious and held on to them for showing privately to people. When she passed away, her daughter found them, felt that they needed to go out somewhere, and she she wasn't able to locate the the grooms, of course, because it was so many years later. But that's what our journey is. Photographs are circa 1957. Um, I believe some of that comes from the memory um, people who uh, found the photographs and, and their belongings and just based on when they would have the, her, her mother worked there also clothing but th- th- it's circa 1957 so that's give or take a few years can you describe the gay rights climate at that time it's such a good good question and it's a complicated answer because depending on who you speak to 
you know, we've spoken to a lot of elders who say, we were having a blast. Our lives were fantastic. We were in love. We were happy. You know, things were okay. However, that's not a completely accurate picture for everybody, obviously. So when you consider Philadelphia in the 50s, they were under a really oppressive kind of administration and a police force at the time. And Frank Rizzo would rise to power as police chief. And and he was raiding the gay bars. He was arresting people in the streets for being in drag, not afraid of force. And so I think that there was a tremendous amount of fear and and a tremendous tremendous amount of secrecy, a sense of, of not being safe just by, by being who one was. I mean, you know, this is a time period when in Philadelphia, and I believe in New York, but we know, in, yeah, also New York, the gay bars were mostly owned by the mob. And they were often being shook down by the mob and then raided by the police. This wasn't because the mob was gay friendly necessarily, but they were the organizations that would run a bar like this, uh, one that might be under under the radar of the police or of the, um, the, the public as a whole. But it, the police raids were common. And um, you know, we spoke with bar owners who are still alive in Philadelphia who owned bars back in, in, the, 50, in the 50s. And uh, we even spoke with one who opened his bar he opened a coffee shop when he was 19, and it was basically an LGBT IQ coffee shop at that time. Uh, he didn't, he couldn't say it out loud, but this is where all the gay kids hung out who couldn't drink yet. And you know, it was just a coffee shop, and it was just a bunch of artists and gay kids hanging out. He ended up getting arrested himself by Rizzo and beaten over it. And then he went on to make many more bars the years, and you know, he didn't back down. Kind of a dangerous time. People were literally being raided and then beat by the police. The pictures resonate because, as Michael and PJ have said, they, they show such a happy celebratory moment. And what lay in store was, was pretty dire. The AIDS epidemic. We don't know what happened to these men. We don't know what happened to the other men in the photos. So uh, we really want to find out. It's, it's part of the story. And we know what came after these photos. But then also, they you know were such pathbreakers because they didn't know that gay marriage would be legalized. And so their celebration is legal today. That really sets what the kernel of it all was. But as we've moved through the many, many stories we've come across as we and talk to people all over the country and who send us leads or bring in stories of their history. I think what we're really finding is that there's a, that queer history has been erased. It's been suppressed. And the TV show is sort of um, one way, small way to help bring some of these stories back into the light that would never have seen the light of day. That was PJ Palmer ending that segment. If you're interested in seeing the photos and they're very interesting the website for the project is at OurOneStory.com, that's O-U-R-O-N-E-S-T-O-R-Y.com, where you can see the photos and send in any tips or suggestions that you might have. That's all for us today. Thanks to Emily Johnson, Nicholas Kamenu-Sandry, Dee Mason, Jordan Johnstone, Rachel Tyler-Jones, and the Joy News team. We'll be back tomorrow live on tape from my lounge room. I'm your host, Arian Potts. Mahalo.
Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. You can help us by visiting joy.org.au and become a member or donate. Any amount helps us bring you community-powered radio. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.